This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. A warning, this episode contains discussion of sexual assault and domestic abuse. In the excellent new film, Women Talking, a group of Mennonite women gather to discuss the abuse they've suffered at the hands of their men. They settle upon two possible solutions, stay and fight or leave the only world they've ever known. The powerhouse cast includes Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, and Jesse Buckley, and it's written and directed by acclaimed filmmaker Sarah Polly. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Aisha Harris. And on this episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're discussing the movie Women Talking. Joining us today is NPR senior editor Barry Hardiman. Welcome back, Barry. Hi, nice to see you. Also with us today is film critic and culture journalist Badatri D. Chaudhry. Welcome back to you too, Badatri. Thank you so much, all of you. Women Talking is set in 2010 within this isolated religious colony where the girls and women have been subjected to drugging, sexual abuse, and beatings for years. Now, as the movie opens, the women have reached their breaking point. When some of their attackers are taken to jail in a nearby city, the other men leave to bail them out, and meanwhile, the women must decide what to do next. Their choices are to A, do nothing, forgive, and forget, B, stay and fight, or C, leave their community and start life anew. Over a couple of days, eight of the women wrestle with their options while reckoning with their faith, as well as their will to protect themselves and their children. The cast includes Rooney Mara as Ona, an unmarried woman who's been impregnated by her attacker, Claire Foy as Salome, Ona's militant sister, and Jesse Buckley as Marike, who firmly believes in forgiving and forgetting. There's also Judith Ivey and Sheila McCarthy as Agatha and Greta, the elders of the committee, as well as Ben Wishaw, who plays August, a man who takes notes during their meetings and helps the group hash out their concerns. The movie is written and directed by Sarah Polly. This is her first film in 10 years, and it's adapted from the novel of the same name by Miriam Tapes, which was partly inspired by a real-life story about Bolivian Mennonite women who faced abuse in their community. Women Talking is in theaters now. Baratri, let's start with you. What did you make of Women Talking? Oh, my mask was drenched. I cried so much at the theater. You know, it was very overwhelming to see this happen in a setting that in the beginning seems like another world, right? Like very cut off from our present. And But like everything you hear and see is like, oh, this is our world, right? And to see those reflections and then you come to know that this year is 2010. And it's like, you know, that playing with time and space was very masterfully done for me. And it constantly played in my mind as I watched the film. And yeah, I was overwhelmed. Uh, I was also laughing. I was crying. And I left feeling a lot of hope. Yeah, I I like that you pointed out that you were laughing because while this is obviously dealing with some very heavy subject matter, Sarah Polly finds moments to throw in some levity here and there. So it's not just doom and gloom the entire time. And it shows that these women can exist both in this space where terrible things have happened to them, but they also can find moments to be funny or at least laugh. Um, Yeah. It's pretty subtle. Yeah. It's like, you know, you and your best friends can be sitting in a room discussing the gravest of things and you see there's something wrong with someone's nose or like something sticking out someone's hair and you just like 
just fall over each other laughing. That's, you know, that was very, very nicely done in the film. Yeah, there's one great line that goes something like, sometimes I think people laugh as hard as they'd like to cry, which I think kind of encapsulates that whole moment. Barry, tell us what you thought about this. I mean, I agree entirely. As always, uh, with Badatri, I will also say I was a like a real lover of this book. And so I definitely came to it knowing that, you know, a lot of that humor, which Sarah Polly has allowed to shine through, is directly from the book. The book is actually quite funny in places, maybe even in their ways in which I think the book is a little more lighthearted, actually, than the movie. And that's partly because of the differences when you have the different storytelling. You know, when you're looking at an image, it's there's something quite stunning about that that actually does make make the film feel a bit darker than the book. I also, I've spoken on this program before about She Said, the movie She Said, and there are ways in which this movie feels like it's in conversation with that movie. And one thing that it, it does very well, which reminded me of She Said, is the way the women are filmed, the way each image of each woman appears on the screen is so purposeful you know, you are watching hands braiding hair. There's this lovely moment in the beginning where the the two youngest women are sort of braiding their hair together in this very intricate way. You're watching them make their X's at the beginning when they're voting. You're watching their feet walking. You watch them moving the pails and the things. There's so much about which is sort of one of the clever things that she said does, right? Like each of the the women who have been victims of Harvey Weinstein, you get to see all of these other parts of their life. Um, you know, in the book, it is August that is the narrator. It is not. It's, it's one of the girls that's the narrator in the film. And Sarah Polly does a really good job of taking that observation and putting it in the hands of the camera and putting it literally on the hands of the women in a way that I think is just so, so beautiful. But I really I loved, enjoyed, recommend. To me, what makes this movie such a challenge, and by that I mean a challenge for the filmmaker, not necessarily for the audience. But mm-hmm. I think what makes it challenging is that some of the ways that filmmakers are most likely to distinguish characters, particularly in an ensemble cast, are not really available to Sarah Polly in this film. Mm-hmm. These women dress similarly. Their yeah. hair is similar. They have similar types of families. And in some ways, they have similar histories. They live in the same community. They are all members of the same faith. One of the things that I enjoyed about the film was seeing their personalities, um, which are obviously just as distinct as anyone else's when you come to their foundational humanity, seeing their personalities gradually emerge and coming to understand, okay, this is one of the women who struggles the most with the things that they're expected to tolerate. This is a woman who feels more of an obligation to stay and leave things as they are. And When you see that some of the women don't necessarily slip easily into the roles that you expect for them, because you see at the beginning Frances McDormand playing an older woman in the community who seems to be kind of what you would expect maybe from a traditional idea of an older woman in the community. She's hesitant to rock the boat. She feels that they should just kind of accept things as they are and men as they are. But when you get into this other conversation with the woman played by Judith mm, Ivey, loved her. you really see it's not as if all of the older women receive this in the same way. So I, I really was touched by this. And and I, I just think Sarah Polly is such a, a marvelously, I don't know, helpful figure in filmmaking. There was such a great moment when in one of the awards categories, the ensemble of women talking tied with the ensemble of 
jackass forever. (laughs) And she just threw herself into the joy of that, which I I just, I admire her so much. I am such a fan of her. So much good acting in this movie. Loved it. Yeah. I'm so happy that she's back, as it were. Like, she hasn't really left, but that she's, it's been 10 years since Stories We Tell, which was a very personal documentary for her. And it's a very cleverly made documentary that I won't even get into, but you should absolutely go watch it, especially if you like this movie. Because I think what both this and Stories We Tell, and even her earlier films, like Take This Waltz, I think so much of it is about language and the importance of language. And when you're thinking about film, there's a sense that film has to be inherently cinematic, quote unquote, or that like the camera Mm -hmm. needs to be constantly moving or there needs to be big set pieces. It needs to feel different from what a play might feel like. And I feel like this could be a play, sure, but I mean that in the best way possible, because even though it is literally women talking for most of the film and not much else happening, the distinction between all these characters, the debates, the very thoughtful conversations that are happening about the difference between leaving and fleeing. They have an entire sort of like debate about that and why that's important to establish if they're going to go forward with whatever option they choose. And so I think that what, you know, Sarah Polly is really doing here is showing how language can be cinematic in a way and can really propel a story. There is this sort of sense of propulsion, I think, that occurs even with all the less showy moments. I also feel as though we, this is dealing with very heavy subject matter, but I think part of what makes this work so well is the fact that we don't see the violence happening to the women. Mm. The aftermath is sometimes shown in quick shots and the mental aftermath, the way it takes its toll on these women is shown, but it's not graphic. It's not explicit in that way. And I think it's really important to not have to fall on that to make us feel something for these women. It was enough to see the way they mull this over and the way they debate for me to feel really just like taken by their story and what they have gone through and what we know they've gone through. Part of Sarah Pahali's body of work that we haven't yet discussed here is her book of essays, which is called Run Toward the Danger, and is about her response to her own trauma. And I think one of the reasons that this is so much the movie for her to have made is what you're talking about in terms of the way that the trauma appears in the film, the moment itself, is so well handled. And it's not one of those things, I think it's tempting to be like, it was more horrifying for what they didn't show. Mm -hmm. It just was. Because it is a horror that is indescribable, and to try to do so, there aren't words. She knows what there are not words for. I also think there's something to be said of the women singing together. And I am a sucker, and I'm so glad Barry talked about it. I'm a sucker for scenes where women tie each other's hair or comb them or oil them. And likewise, I'm also a sucker for scenes where women sing together. And I think more it makes it more poignant that these are songs of faith. Like, you know, it, the film never lets you forget that these are all like God-fearing, believing women. Mm. I really appreciated that, especially at a time where people are weaponizing religion to do so many things that, yeah. you know, no religion actually asks you to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you were talking about not showing the violence directly, I think the other thing that that does that I welcome is I always feel like that is the filmmaker saying what we're not going to set these characters up to do is sit around and have a debate 
either among themselves or invite the audience to say, well, how bad was it? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer to the question of should we stay, should we leave? Well, how bad was it? Let's go into the details. How much happened? How many people did this happen to? It takes for granted the depth of the trauma. And the other thing I wanted to mention, I completely agree with Badatri that the emotion of some of the things like the singing or the hair braiding is so intimate. And one of the risks of telling a story about a sort of insular community is you can wind up building in emotional remoteness of of a kind. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important that she builds in these moments. The laughter is part of that as well. They're not living a life of emotional remoteness. Mm -hmm. It, It is what it is to them. And it is so interesting, I think, how Sarah Polly uses this barn that is the setting for the vast majority of this conversation because it made me think about the fact that, you know, a barn is what it's a place of shelter, really. In whatever harsh conditions, it's a simple but critical source of shelter and safety. And it grows dark over the course of the day, which I think is an interesting dynamic. But I appreciated the use of the setting. Yeah, The barn also becomes a museum because they say that leave behind our minutes, like leave behind these charts and like pin it to the wall so people can see. So, you know, I found that fascinating that, you know, it becomes a space of resistance. Yeah. And just the idea, we also never really see any of the men except for August, as as we've already mentioned, played by Ben Wishaw. And he's the one who's helping them. And you know, there's a world where he could be considered the good man. The not all men man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not all men. But part of it is an, a necessity. They None of these women, because this community is so insular and because this it's so retrograde, none of these women are educated. They can't read. They can't write. And so he's there to sort of chronicle it and make sure that their story is told after they've left so others can come after them and hopefully learn from what they experienced and what they did. And him being that bridge, I think, is so crucial. And the way the the story really plays with this idea or like questions the idea of like, when do boys stop being able to learn and teach and become sort of the <laughs> the men who we fear? Like, is there a line and how do we keep it from being crossed? One of the things that's so beautiful, just and again, directly from the book, the idea of the the minutes that he's taking and that they are also supposed to serve this larger purpose. They also serve this very personal purpose, which is that, you know, he is in love with one of the women. And he is also hurt, not in the same way, but he is also hurt. And the minutes are there to heal him. And, you know, and the women are able because of the, you know, the tremendous strength and the tremendous, you know, character that they have are able to see his pain and understand that their pain is also going to heal his. And it is, I mean, you just feel the accountability that it, it was it was very, very powerful for me. Yeah. yeah. So much of the story, I think, is about balance. And, you know, you begin in this position where the women are trying to find the balance between the obligation to the community and the obligation to their own safety, the safety of their daughters, the obligation to God, the obligation to commitments that you've already made. So it's about balance in that way. I think it's also about balance among all these different, from a filmmaking perspective, balance among all these different characters and the very careful balancing of this idea that, as Barry said, Ben Wishaw's own pain becomes a piece of the story without being centered in the story and understanding how to value that and say that men also have experiences that that are meaningful inside a a system that works this way Mm -hmm. and in fact also often wind up being harmed by it right yeah at the end of the day 
This is a story that I think encourages us to think of this world as a humanist world or one that should be humanist forward. And it does encompass all of these different perspectives and including from the Ben Vishal character, I think is really important and a reason why we all love this film. Obviously, we really enjoyed it. You should tell us what you think about women talking if you see it when you do. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. And up next, we'll be talking about what's making us happy this week. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. And now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, What's Making Us Happy. Barry, hit us. Uh, Well, gosh, guys, I did not want to have to explain this book to everybody, but I find myself in the position of being able to bring you this wonderful novel that is going to sound hard to explain. So the book is Babel, or The Necessity of Violence, An Arcane History of the Oxford Translators Revolution by R.F. Kuang. This is a uh, an historical fantasy novel, and it's been compared mostly, I think, to The Golden Compass, Philip Pullman's book, which I think is, um, and it's it's kind of easy, easy to see why this takes place in a fictional Oxford university. But this book has this system of magic, which is so special and so well told. Basically, at Oxford, there is a specific place called Babel which is built on translation. So if a word is somewhat similar in one language but doesn't quite mean the same thing, the distance between those words create a magic which is imbued into these silver bars. So yes, was this book made for me? Sure, it was. But I also would argue it is made for you. And here's why. You know how you had, there's some epic books that you sort of go right through it and you're like, oh my God, here I am at the end of this sweeping. This is one you're going to just want to take a little bite of one time after another. And you're going to want to read little parts of it. And you're going to want to think about the magic. And then you're going to want to think about the words that you know. What is the magic in your life of translation? This book is stunning. It is called Babel or The Necessity of Violence and Arcane History of the Oxford Translators Revolution. And again, the author is R.F. Kuang. She's just this wonderful fantasy writer who's also got some other books that you should check out. But this is the one that just knocked my socks off. Awesome. Thank you, Barry. Badatri, let us know what is making you happy. There is clearly a theme here. Um, <laughs> so I uh, I watched Women Talking and I went back to one of my favorite books. It's actually one of the earliest works of um, science fiction, fantasy, if you will, it's this uh, book called Sultana's Dream. It's written by Begum Rokea, also known as Rokea Sakavat Hussain. In 1905, it was written in English. 
she was a Bengali Muslim feminist and she started a girl's school, which is still there in Calcutta, where I grew up. And she wrote this book and published in the Indian Ladies magazine. And it's basically about a world, a feminist utopia called Ladyland, in which women run everything. And the men stay at home uh, in seclusion, which is like the Parda system, a lot of uh, Muslim women lived under. So it's that. And the science fiction part comes in because like it's a, it's a very high tech universe where they have these machines that is making farming so easy. That is that there are like these flying cars, which is making traveling so easy. And it's a beautiful compliment to the film that we just spoke about and to think that it was written in 1905 in English by a Bengali Muslim woman. So, you know, it just reminded me that we are all in this together and we've been in this together for centuries. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Remind us of the name of that again? Uh, It's called Sultana's Dream and um, it's pretty easily available wherever you get your books from. Awesome. I just bought it. So I (laughs) can attest to that. (laughs) Thanks so much, Badadri. Linda. What is making you happy this week? Well, NPR's own wonderful Jasmine Garst Garcia has, uh, who used to be one of the hosts of Alt Latino, has been doing a lot of really interesting and and wonderful work in podcasts. And I have recently been listening to her recent podcast, The Last Cup, which is about Lionel Messi and his sort of journey through being like this incredibly powerful and important soccer slash football uh, star without ever having won the World Cup for Argentina. Jasmine had the presence of mind to be making this in the lead up to the World Cup. (laughs) So there's sort of something particularly magical about listening to it now, I think. I started this podcast after the end of the World Cup. So I sort of spoiled the ending for myself, although Jasmine didn't know the ending, right, when she was making the podcast. It is about sort of his history in Argentina, but it's also about Argentina. It's about Argentina's relationship with soccer. It's about Jasmine's relationship with soccer. She grew up very near a soccer stadium. It's about her family coming to the United States from Argentina when she was young and One of the really cool things about this podcast is that they put it out in both English and Spanish. So, uh, again, uh, NPR's The Last Cup, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Linda. Great choice. So uh, I'm always in the mood for a good whodunit, murder mystery, whatever. But Glass Onion has definitely made me even more into it as of late than I usually am. And so I decided to revisit Ryan Johnson's directorial debut, Brick which is so good. You know, it'd been, I don't know, probably a decade since the last time I watched the film. So I went into it completely forgetting pretty much everything that happened, which is actually the way I like to go into my whodunits is just completely forgetting who did it so I can relive trying to figure out who did it. But what I love about this film, it's a neo-noir murder mystery that's set in a California suburb Uh, against the backdrop of a high school. So most of the characters are supposed to be high school students. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt stars as Brendan, who's this kid who's investigating the murder of his ex-girlfriend. It's got clever dialogue, comical bits, lots of twists. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character keeps getting beat up in the most comical ways. And it's really kind of the blueprint for all of the Ryan Johnson films that he made afterwards. So you can see that DNA in this film This was a slam dunk for me. I'm glad I rewatched it. 
That is Brick, uh, the 2005 film directed by Ryan Johnson, and you can rent it on pretty much all the major streaming sites. Great pick, and they made it for like a buck fifty, and you can kind of tell. You can kind of tell. It is a triumph. It really is. It's so great. So that's what's making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. But after D. Chaudhry, Barry Hardiman, Linda Holmes, thanks to you all for being here. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. And one last thing before we go, we're going to be talking about the TV series Cheers. Yes, I'm so excited. And we want to know your questions about the series. What should we talk about? Let us know. Email us a voice memo with your question about Cheers to pchh at npr.org. Again, email a voice memo with your question to pchh at npr.org. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and edited by Mike Katzen. Brendan Crump is our podcast coordinator and our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Aisha Harris, and we'll see you all next week. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity and tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org.